But for those of us, you know, who are older, life seems so short. But when you're younger, it seems so long. You have so much to do. The, the challenge, though, is long or short, it all depends on how you fill that time with life. We've been going through this series. We're going through the book of John. Turn with me to John 12. We've been going through the book of John. And guys, John is one of these just such unusual passages or or books in the Bible where honestly when people get saved, I tell them dig right into the book of John. Because honestly, it is so simple. It focuses more on the teaching of Jesus than rather than what he does, but it's both. And it, it's the gospel threat. The, the passage, John chapter 20, verse 31, these things I've written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I've entitled this sermon series, The Abundant Life. God invites all of us to have this life, but as the good shepherd leads us in and out of pasture, As we follow him, he calls us, we know his name, he knows our name. As we follow him, he then invites us into this abundant life. He says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've I've come to bring life and that you may have it abundantly. So as believers, we have life, but the shepherd now leads us to experience the abundant life. And all that is, church, it has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with the Western Christian lifestyle. It has everything to do with following the good shepherd as he leads us in and out of pasture. Because as as Psalm 23 says, he leads us beside streams of water. He leads us into green pastures. And what happens? He restores our soul. And in this intimacy with God, himself. We enjoy this abundant life. And yes, it is filled with trials. That is a promise Jesus gives. In this world, you will have trouble. We haven't come to that passage yet, but it's a promise. If you're looking for trouble, be a Christian. You're sure to find it. The truth is that happens when you follow the good shepherd, but he is able to take everything that the devil means for evil and turn it around for your good and his maximized glory. That's just the nature of God. That's who he is as the good shepherd leading us. Now, last week we looked at Mary in John, in John chapter 12. <laughs> okay. Yes, thank you for that. Amen. But Mary demonstrates the gospel. Now, in the synoptics, the first Matthew, Mark, Luke... In this particular story, Mary's not mentioned, but her actions are. And Jesus says that this story will be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Why, church? Why is something like her taking this expensive bottle of perfume, a year's wages, whatever you make in a year, you do that calculation. That's how much she spent on simply this act of devotion to her Savior, Jesus. That is the gospel in the nutshell. Jesus, having raised her brother from death to life, spiritually, we're raised from death to life. And her response is, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And so she expresses devotion expensively, extravagantly. And then the next week, did I say that was last week? I I was just pulling your leg. No, that was two weeks ago. Last week... We looked at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and the people 
And, and this was so amazing because it's taken from Psalm 118 we looked at. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, what happens is that in Psalm 118, the king comes into Jerusalem and the people are following, singing, save us, which is Hosanna. And they follow him, laying down palm branches. This is Psalm 118, following him to where? Do you remember where? Someone tell me, where did, where did, the, where did the king take them in the psalm? To the temple, and what specifically in the temple? The altar, the horns of the altar. The significance is Jesus doing this just before Passover. The Passover lamb, Thursday afternoon, was to be sacrificed on that altar. And in essence, he goes to the temple. Now, he doesn't cleanse it. He does that the next day because it was getting late, it says in Mark. But Jesus goes into the temple, and I just can't help but wonder, where did his eyes fall? Now, of course, it fell upon those who were truly desecrating the temple and turning it into a marketplace for just to make money. But I can't help if he looked at that altar and he said, that is my destiny. Now, understand that as the lamb, he was to be sacrificed there. But as a person, of course, he was sacrificed just outside that gate on Golgotha. And so the people respond in praise. Now, I want us to follow this passage I'm going to read just the very end of what we looked at last week. So I'm going to read to you John 12. I'm going to start with verse 17, and then we're going to take it through verse 33. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Remember, there were a number of people, even the Jews, and that's John's phrase for meaning enemies that were Jewish of Jesus. Constantly antagonists, and the last couple of chapters he just keeps bringing home truth, truth, truth to them, including I am the good shepherd truth, including healing the man who was born blind. And this begins to divide these leaders, these what's called the Jews, and some of them now start believing, and some of them were at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and you know what happened. A dead man, four days after he died, came back to life, and people are just, what, who is this? And so this is what's going on here. Many are beginning to believe in him. Many people, verse 18 says, because they had heard, now this is those who had heard, who had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Okay, and that's this group that John's focusing on. There may well have been two groups, a group of disciples and then just people attending the feast. We, we suggested this. But now verse look at 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Church, it's inevitable. The whole world wants truth. The whole world. It's so amazing. Those who propose evolution that say it's just all random chance. How does that happen by chance with absolutely no purpose produce a creature like human beings that are consumed by purpose? God created man with the sense of purpose. And I'm going to tell you what, the gospel appeals to the heart of man that's broken and distant and in darkness, captivated by their sin, addicted to their sin. And that truth of the gospel penetrates that hardened heart. And so this is what's beginning to happen. And the Pharisees, they're, they're kind of saying, what's going on here? 
is Jesus. He, he does miracles. He speaks like no man has ever spoken, and he does so, by the way, with authority. How can we stop? It's like a train wreck. From their perspective, it's a train wreck. And really, it's the train that has come to save. And we know this. So he goes on. Look at, now, this is what we're going to focus on, verse 20. <clears throat> now, there were some Greeks... That's not another word for Gentiles, ethnos. No, this truly is Hellenos. This is Hellenists. This is Greeks. So people from a different land. There were some Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Remember, this is Passover, several days before the Passover. They came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now here's Jesus' response. And I just want you to think, if there were some Greeks, and remember Jesus in his earthly ministry, I'm just taking a quick little break here. We're going to come back to it. Here's Jesus, and his entire life is devoted to the lost sheep of Israel. And he needs to start there so that they get it, especially the 12. But so that Jerusalem, because he knows Pentecost, he knows what's going to happen... But he also has the future in mind, and he knows and he desires that the Gentiles be saved. But he has to start right here with the Jews. That is God's ultimate plan. It's now unfolding. And now some Greeks start coming to him, and they want to see Jesus. We're going to unwrap that a little bit. But what do you think, G if, if, sorry, uh, this is hard, but if you were Jesus, what would you have said? Finally, it's so good to see you here. Let me do a miracle for you. You know, or how are you, you know, Terry, what kind of questions do you have? You know, should I go to the Sermon on the Mount? Let me flip, flip through my sermon notes here. And how about if I, listen to what, how Jesus responds. Listen to this. What an opportunity, you know. Finally, this is the ultimate end game where the Gentiles, the Greeks, all nations are to believe in him. This is how he responds. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's going to unwrap that for us here in just a bit. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies and remains only, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus, you're blowing your chance. You've got it right here. Where are you going with it? I can only imagine his disciples, Philip and, and Andrew, just, or Phil and Andy, however you want to call them, just wondering, Jesus, what are you doing? This is, this is, this is such a great opportunity. Jesus understands that. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. <clears throat> My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice, now understand the Greeks are here. I'm sure this freaks them out. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd there 
excuse me, the crowd that was there and heard it said, it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. I know that there's a song, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That is a play on words. I I hope they got their theology right. To lift Jesus up, according to this passage, doesn't mean we praise him. So I'm going to suggest that the author had this play on words. We lift him up to praise him, but why do we praise him? Because he is being lifted up. That is, he is going to be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness... That those who looked to that bronze serpent in Numbers that tells us this, they were healed of their venomous snake bite. Even so, that's related to sin. Sin is that venomous snake bite, and it has killed us. It has killed us. And as we look, as we look, (laughs) as we look to Jesus, as he is being lifted up, as we then believe in him, We have eternal life. So this being lifted up is reference to his death. It tells us in the very next verse right there. So let's back up. Let's look at this. And actually, I was going to read all the way through, what was it, verse 36. And I just realized, you know what, this is two messages. And so you'll see that next week. But here we are. So some Greeks are coming to you. Why did they come to Philip and to Andrew? Why did they do this? Remember, both of them, including Peter, because Peter is Andrew's brother, they're from Bethsaida, but why Bethsaida? What's the big deal? John, remember, tells us this in the very beginning in chapter 1. They're from Bethsaida. Why is that? Because Bethsaida, the north part of the, of the Sea of Galilee, is right next door to the Decapolis. The Decapolis is ten cities, very Roman, very Greek, many Gentiles. Remember the 2,000 pigs that ran down the bank into the, into the Sea of Galilee? That was in the Decapolis. Further south than Bethsaida, but that was in the Decapolis. And they had pigs because, well, they were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. So I'm going to suggest that Philip and Andrew were very used to living amongst Gentiles. And so when they hear that Greeks, who would be Gentiles, want to see Jesus They're excited. They don't want to just push them away. They're excited. They're they're getting something from even as John includes this, and I'm not going to go into the various passages, but Jesus alludes that he's not just here to save Jews. He's here to save the scattered children of God. That is those who are going to believe in Jesus Christ. Jews, Gentiles throughout this world, and there's just this idea of this gospel is going to spread throughout the world. And I think they're getting this. Now, it's interesting to note that these Greeks simply say, we want to see Jesus. Now, there are two Greek words that could be used, and they use the less frequently used one. But John uses this particular word that's translated see. Sometimes it's translated no. Very strange Greek word. But blepo is generally the word for see, and it's not this word. Because this word means to see in order to get to know. I don't want to just see him, 
You know, look at how he's dressed or, you know, is he bigger than life? Just how tall is he, you know? But instead, they want to see him. I'm sure they've heard about the miracles. They're at the feast. They're God-fearing Greeks. They're at the feast of Passover. And they hear about this resurrection of, of Lazarus from the dead. They want to find out who is this guy. He seems, he, he's not a demigod. But John tells us in chapter 1, he is God who has come in the flesh. And now he's doing these miracles and he's proclaiming truth to the point. Now, we haven't gotten there in chapter 14, but he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If that's not truth, that is totally arrogant and self-centered. The only way you can get to God is you got to go through me. That verse ruffles every feather in every other religion. Jesus is the only way. And so... Anyway, these, these Greeks, they're investigating. They want to know who is this Jesus we've heard about. And so they just don't want to see him. They want to get to know him. But as I said, what's, what's interesting is just how Jesus responds. You know, I know for myself when I was a kid, I, I grew up, my mom, and this was her choice, but they taught us about Santa Claus. They told us a fable. I guess it was to enjoy Christmas more. We as adults chose not to do that with our kids. But I can, I can remember my mom and dad saying, you know what, we're going to go to the mall. And guess who we're going to see? A visitor from the North Pole. And I just thought, we're going to see Santa Claus or one of his elves. And sure enough, there was Santa Claus. And I can still remember as this little kid. And I'm sitting down on his lap and I'm thinking, this isn't Santa Claus. Who is this? It's a fake beard. He's an imposter. I felt like Elf. <laughs> you saw the movie Elf. Okay. I really wanted to see Santa Claus and they sent an imposter instead. I was so disappointed. <laughs> Here's another time I, I remember getting to see something I was really anticipating. My sister-in-law, Meredith's sister, uh, Julie, got Jimmy and I and someone else, maybe her, tickets to see the best football team in the world, the Philadelphia Eagles. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles. And this was when Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow's been on five different football teams. I think he made the right choice in just deciding not to pursue that and doing exactly what he's doing right now, which is absolutely amazing, the foundation that he's running. <clears throat> but I can still remember, I was so excited. And we got to sit behind the end zone. And we saw, t and that's where Tim Tebow was throwing the ball. I was like, that's, that's, now he never started a game, but it, I got to see him. And, you know, I realized that there are basically Two things that when you want to see something, determine whether you're disappointed or not. And I'm going to tell you this right now. These Greeks were not disappointed in how Jesus responded or, or what the whole thing that unfolded. Number one is expectations. Number one, Jesus, in, with his expectations, he did miracles and he was very wise. He, he had truth and people could recognize there's wisdom in what he says. Even, some, even many of the Pharisees recognized this. But then the second thing is experience. 
that's going to determine whether you're disappointed or not. Does the experience live up to expectations? And when I saw the Eagles, I, I, I think that they won the game, which for pre, it was a preseason game, by the way. He, and Tim Tebow did play for like a quarter, I think. So, and it was great. I mean, he didn't throw any miraculous passes or anything. But I was excited because I've, I've admired and appreciated Tim Tebow since he was in college. And here's my opportunity, and I got to see it. I got to see my Eagles play. <clears throat> and this was like a long time ago. I think eight, eight years ago, to be exact. And my experience lived up to my expectations. And I'm going to suggest there is such a joy when you have high expectations and the experience matches it. I'm going to suggest that is exactly what happens here. And so, suggesting this, we're going to need to look at Jesus' response, and we're going to need to dig into it. What is Jesus saying? Remember, Mary, in the beginning of chapter 12, responds to who Jesus is with the ultimate manner of honoring him, with a year's worth of expensive perfume. Which, for a guy, that doesn't make sense. For a lady, I guess maybe it does, but this is how she does it. And it's amazing. It is beautiful in what it's extravagant devotion. That's the heart of what faith is, church. It's extravagant devotion to Jesus. It's not just a head knowledge acknowledging, it is a heart's devotion and yielded and surrendering to this person, Jesus. This is what she does. And then as they're they're praising him as he's marching into Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us. And we even read it in Psalm 118. They say, save us, O king. Save us, O Yahweh, using the king. Save us. And where does the king take them? But to the horns of the altar. And once you, in the, once you understand the gospel, you see the beauty of that. The, the one they're crying out to save us, saves us, takes them to the altar, which, is the cro- which would represent the cross of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is how we get saved. And so Jesus now, or John, is taking this this theme of his stories and weaving it in and he reminds or tells people about this story and here's Jesus' response. He says, now at last the hour has come. Now this is John's way. He's not talking about a specific hour because guess what church? Jesus was on the cross for six. Six hours. From nine to three in, nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. Half of that time it was completely dark. And so Jesus is is saying the hour has come for me to be glorified. Now, if you're a Greek, what do you think that means? White horse, riding in Jerusalem, maybe riding into Rome, conquering. Awesome, we came at the right time, right? But then Jesus takes a turn, and he takes this understanding of glorified as if he, he just leaves it in left field and goes off in a different direction. It feels that way, but he's absolutely not because this is how he will be glorified. He's going to be like a seed. And that seed is going to fall into the ground. And technically, because it's buried, we use this concept of it's now dead. Technically, that wouldn't be true, but you understand what what he's saying here. The seed falls into the ground. It's buried, just like a body would be buried. But that's the only way in which it can germinate. And when it does, what happens? 
it sends, it germinates, sends up a shoot, it eventually unfolds, and if it's fruit, it produces fruit. If it's a vegetable plant, it produces vegetables. Whatever it produces, it's going to produce more seeds. One seed planted will end up generally producing thousands and thousands of other seeds. That's me. That's what Jesus is saying. I have come to this hour... His entire life, understand his life was good. It was filled with miracles and serving and following the Father. He did only what he heard the, saw the Father doing and spoke only what he heard the Father say. He was a completely obedient son. Even in the midst of oppression and people um, attacking him. And, and there's more attack, I believe, in the Gospels than what is revealed. Just because of a passage in Hebrews 5. But Jesus finds himself under duress and constantly throughout his earthly ministry relying upon the Father. And the Father many times delivered him. Just like an example in, in Luke 4 when he's at the precipice. The city of Nazareth had driven. And how does he respond? Does he just jump and the angels catch him? He walks right through the crowd. And I have thought about that passage. How on earth did that ever happen? The point is this, that his entire life, even before his earthly ministry, is focused on this one event. Here he is. He is about 33 years of age. We're guessing there. We're the, no one knows exactly. Just as he began his ministry when he was around 30, which would be what a priest would do. And then for three, three and a half years, that's the best guess that we can say, and tradition verifies that regardless. Now he's about to die on the cross. It was all for this. This is the hour that I was meant for. Now is the time for that seed to fall into the ground and it's going to die. Because if it doesn't die, it is alone. But what happens? It dies and produces many seeds. He's obviously referring to his death on the cross Guess what? As he's lifted up, he will do what? He will draw all men, and that all, this happens frequently in the New Testament, means all kinds. Not every single person will be drawn. Obviously, you look around, and there's plenty who don't. But he will draw all kinds, Greeks and Jews, all men unto me. This is his hour. This is when he will be glorified. Wow. He's glorified in the cross? Absolutely, because the cross wasn't the end game, was it? Absolutely important. Don't get me wrong. He died so that he would be raised, so that he would conquer, not just pay for our sins by dying, but conquer both sin and death. The light has come into the darkness and scattered the dark. We're going to look at that next week. And so here he is. He's going to be glorified. How? By being lifted up. And that's when he's going to draw all men to him. But he must be that seed. He must die first in order for him to then produce many seeds. Now listen to what he says. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's unspoken is this. If we, if Jesus is the seed, why does he launch into this? If the man loves his life, he'll lose it. What's going on here? Unless Jesus is saying, even as I am a seed... 
the unspoken idea is that we are seeds. We are all called to be seeds. And therefore, we too must die. Not physically like Jesus, not for the sins of the world like Jesus, but we must die, not physically, but spiritually. There must be something that dies in me. As Paul says, I was crucified and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so now that Mike Curtis, when he was converted at age 14, Mike Curtis died. The old man, and I was really young, but that's my old man. My old man died that day. My old man was buried six feet under. Just like that seed fell to the ground and is buried, Mike Curtis was buried six feet under, and he was raised spiritually a new man. There was a change that took place. I had to die in order to, in order to come alive. Mike Curtis needed to make a decision that he wasn't going to live his life the way he was always doing it according to his desires. And Jesus is saying, you've got to do this, but to do it, for you, you must die to this life here on earth. You cannot love your life in this world. I mean, does that mean we have to hate ourselves? Is, is this Jesus' point? Yeah, I've got, I've got to hate me in order to, he's not saying that at all. Actually, if you were to go to, and I'm just going to, to be quick here, but just quickly turn with me to John 17. In John 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He uses this idea of the world numerous times with, with three different phrases. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 18. John 17, 13 through 18. And remember, this he is praying to the Father, and his disciples are gathered around him, so they hear it. I am coming to you now. But I say, excuse me, but I say these things while I am still in the world. So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I'm pretty excited right now. He wants to say something about this full measure of joy. Here's what he says. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, and the world, that is the people of the world, the world has, has hated them, and they are, for they are not of the world, not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here are the three phrases. Number one, as long as we understand world. The world is either the people of the world or just the ways that the world operates. And the ways that the world operates isn't necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily sin. But I can tell you what, it can be a, an extreme distraction. I'm going to get there in just a moment. But here, when he's referring to the world, he's talking about the people in the world, the sinful people of the world, and he gives three, three phrases. You, if you're a follower of Jesus... If you're a disciple, that means that you are not of this world. 
That means that you are not engaged in the sin of this world. You've been called out of it. You're, you're, in, the, you're in the world, but you are not of the world. To be of the world means I act just like the people of the world. See, that was Mike Curtis before he turned 14. That was me living according to my old man. But that's not me anymore. It didn't instantly change. My, my life instantly changed. But some of those old man habits took some time to change. And so here, we're not of the world. As a matter of fact, when he says, you, you, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Some of us, when we've had a hard day, we might say, Jesus, take me home. Okay, I get that. Jesus isn't saying, hey, hey God, you know, even if they have bad days, you just don't, just don't take them home. That, that's basically what it means by out of the world. I'm, I'm, they are not, I didn't call them, I didn't ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. Why? Because I am asking that you send them into the world. So they are not, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're not being called out of the world physically, but they are being called, and you are being called into the world. There is a mission here then. Jesus is expressing this in his high priestly prayer. We're on a, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a sheep following the good shepherd, you're on a mission. God has purposefully placed you in the world not to be part of the world, not to look like the world, not to let the world's culture, it's messed up, debilitating, wicked culture, not for you to be conformed to it. So many Christians, they just want, yeah, let me see how close I can become to looking like the world without sinning. Good luck on that. That never works. The truth, though, is that Jesus in this chapter, going back to chapter 12, he says that we are, he is, he's, tell, he's telling the people, you have to hate your life in this world. Let me go back, and, and before we put it together, why does he say hate? Are you aware that in, in Hebrew idioms, if you go back to Rachel and Leah, two ladies that Jacob married, it says that he loved Rachel, but in the Hebrew it says he hated Leah. That, when that word hate is used in that context, it means to love less. It doesn't mean that Jacob hated his wife. He loved Leah. But his love and the real reason why he was even there working for Laban was because he loved Rachel. So it's not that he hated, like we use the word hate. It's not that he hated Leah that way, but he loved her less. Fast forward to Malachi 1 where it says, I loved Jacob but hated Esau. He loved Esau less. As a matter of fact, if you were to turn to Matthew, you don't have to do this, I'll read it to you, but Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is what Jesus is saying here. You, you hate, that is, you love less 
your life in this world. Now, he's not saying a life that's given over to the sin of this world. He's not suggesting this. He's referring to the world like making money. Hey, guys, you know what? If, if you want to have food on your table, guess what you have to do? You have to work for your money so that you can buy food. And this is a necessity in this world. I enjoy eating. I really do. I do. I'm going to use a little illustration here for you. I, I generally eat my cereal in the morning with, with spoons. Okay? Yeah. Now, there's, I have four different types of spoons here. I have a very small Luca spoon. It's a baby spoon. Um, my wife, she has a lot of these types of spoons. Not like this, but they're generally hanging upside down and they're from different states. She has a whole display thing of them. And she's got, but this right here, this is like, this is a baby spoon. I don't eat my cereal with this, by the way. Here's a, what we call a, ta- a teaspoon, right? It's a little bigger. I will stir my coffee with one of these, but I will not eat my cereal with one of these. Here's my favorite right here. This is a tablespoon. This tablespoon, and I rarely eat my cereal at the table, but this tablespoon is big enough that it's just perfect for eating cereal. All right? That's, this, is, this is my go-to spoon. This right here is not the spoon that I use for my cereal, just so you know. This is an ice cream dipping spoon. And no, I don't eat my ice cream with this spoon either. Okay, I do use this. I might even eat it slower and use one of these. But here's what I can assure you. I don't love my spoons. I, I enjoy eating, but I don't love my spoons. Kind of a silly illustration, but I purposely made it that way. Because how silly is it? For us to love our job so that it consumes us. That's our full attention. I, am, I totally am on board with learning your profession, doing well, and representing Christ in the excellence that you bring to the table with your job. But I don't love my job. I enjoy pastoring, but I don't love it so that I just do it. Many pastors do it because they love the stage and they want to be up front and love to become well-known. That, that's not who God calls pastors to be. But you can love certain things in this world. You can love money. And can I just say money, money, is, money can be a good thing. But money can also be a bad thing if you love it. See, money's needed, but love for it will cross the line And it's only a means to an end, just like a spoon for eating my food. It's a means to an end. Why on earth would you love spoons? Now, I think my wife, I'm going to tell her, I think she does love her spoons. Her her, her display spoons. Okay. I'm just just joking. They're beautiful. She she likes them. I'm just throwing her under the bus very graciously there. But she, she loves her spoons. I get that. I love this little baseball. It's a Phillies baseball. I won't get into that. But the truth is... It's easy for us. We're Christians, so we say, well, of course I don't love the world. So then why do you devote so much time to this or to this or to this game or to this or recreation? And why do you spend so much time in the world and making your house look so beautiful? And I'm all in favor of your house looking beautiful. But if that consumes you, I, and I can't answer this question for you, 
But you need to ask, do I love my life in this world? Now, for some of you right now, you're a little bit confused. Wait a second. I'm in this world. I'm supposed to enjoy it, right? I mean, do I just hate life in general? You've heard the expression, just love in life. I actually entitled the message that, just love in life. But I love this life to serve the Lord. I just don't love the things of this life because they're too easily a distraction. I can't tell you how many, and, and we're, we're going to talk about this just a little bit tomorrow morning with men. But when, we, when you pick up the Bible and you start reading through it, does it bore you? When you're praying, you spend like three minutes and it's like, oh my goodness, only three minutes. Or do you love praying? Now, there's a couple of reasons, and I want to be careful as, as I talk about this, but I'm going to suggest maybe we don't love the Word of God, we don't love prayer, we don't love worship, we don't love fellowshipping with other Christians. Because we're so into our group, our, my hobby. I'm, I'm so into, you know, the 18 holes of golf that I get to play this weekend. I'm so into this TV show. I'm so into these things. And when I wake up in the morning, I don't have time to get into the Bible and the Word, man. I, I, because I was up so late last night watching that favorite TV show. Well, actually, a couple of them. And we have to just step back. And, and again, I can't answer that question for you. You can. And I'm just going to ask, how much do you love the stuff of this world? Don't get me wrong. I enjoy my life. I really do. I'm a happy person. I believe that in, when he was talking about the full measure of my joy, I, I believe that I experience that. I want to experience more of it. But guess how you experience more of that joy? The full measure, he says, of this joy that's going to be in them. It's by doing this. It's by being that seed that dies to the life of this world. My passion is not to find enjoyment by all of these things that I can do. And church, we can become so busy in this. Jesus' entire life was filled with this one singular purpose. To die. To be raised to life. So that he could then produce many seeds. I'm going to suggest that Jesus was not a depressed kind of guy. I'm going to suggest that he was filled with joy. Maybe not Pat during Passion Week, because he even tells us here about how he feels. This is this week. It's hard. I mean, goodness, what is it like? To be God, and of course we can't answer this question, come in the flesh, you've never experienced sin or the guilt of one sin, and now you're going to die for billions and not just their sins, but for their guilt. How do you do that? Jesus, that's what he, well, that's what Jesus had to do. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And that just blows my mind. That was his purpose. For this hour, I was called church our sense of destiny, we are sent into this world for this very reason. 
My entire life is consumed with following Jesus, living for him, representing him well for my family, for my neighbors, for you guys. And I hope you do that for me too because I need good examples. But our whole life is not consumed by how much money I'm going to make and how big is my IRA or my 401k. don't Don't get me wrong. I set aside money every month towards our future because that's what Proverbs challenges us to do, save money. So I try to do that. There are some months in which uh, the type of saving we want to do, we we can't, but we try very hard to save money. That's a good thing, but that's not my life. I don't don't sit down and just ogle over our account and just how much more, how many more hours do I have to work and how much have we saved? I look at those statistics. Okay, cool, good. Unfortunately, the Dow Jones is down this month. Oh, it's up next month, and it's down the next month, and it's up the next month. And, but that does, I'm not a yo-yo emotionally because of that. Okay, I guess it'll, all, it'll work out. We're doing, I'm doing my part, and my wife is doing her part. She manages that in our home. I take care of the other finances, but that's not my life. And so Jesus says that life, those, the stuff in your life, if you love it, it is going to be such a distraction That's why the rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, said, what must I do to gain eternal life? He said, in essence, sell everything you have. Was he preaching a gospel of good works? Absolutely not. He just knew that there was a God in this man's life, and if he was going to follow Jesus, he was going to serve two gods, and you can't do it. You just can't. You got to choose. Who are you going to serve? You're going to love the one and hate the other, despise the other and serve the other, so tell me right now, but you can't serve God and money. Now, he didn't say that. He said that in his Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say that to him, but this is what he is in essence saying. There's another God in your life that you are presently following, and that God needs to die. And if you don't want that God to die, you can't follow me. This is what Jesus was telling him. This is the cost of being a disciple. My old man that lived in this world and loved it and tried so hard to be popular and failed miserably, just so you know, that that just longed for people's approval, that old Mike Curtis had to die. Me being distracted, sports was my God. And so when I gave my heart to Christ that summer, I said, okay, Jesus, whatever it takes, I just want to be like you. And God said, I'm going to take you up on that deal. And God pulled competitive sports out of my life. Broke me, totally. I wept, church. Wide world of sports was my Bible. I lived for the things of this world. My life was devoted to this. I loved my life in this world. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you can't. Those are distractions. You love them less. And to be honest with you, we can say all day long, oh, I love the things of this world less, but how do you spend your time? Where truly is your passion? Enough said. God and his mission is to consume us. And if we allow that to happen and thereby serve 
and follow me. You can't serve him without following him. He tells us this. You can't follow him without serving him. They go hand in glove. You must, if you're going to serve, you follow. And if you're going to follow, you must serve. That's just what it means to be a disciple. And he says this. And if you do that, guys, some of you, and I'm reading between the lines, some of you, you're going to give your life for me. Physically. Not just the old man being crucified and your love for this thing. You're going to die for me. All of you 11, well, minus Judas, but not you, John. I'm going to spare your life. They're going to die. He says, but my father's going to honor you. That Greek word, honor, time, means to place value upon. Sometimes it's used to mean financially. I'm not suggesting that it means that here. But if you're going to choose to follow him at all costs, no matter what the cost, he is going to place such high value upon upon you. The Father loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But if you're his child, you are dear to his heart. You are the apple of his eye. He will superintend your actions until that time that you go to be with him or he comes back, whichever comes first. That's his love for you. That's his superintention. That's his oversight. That's his providence. That's his care for you. That's his love. Jesus loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That's love, church. And when you say yes to him and you serve and follow him, he is going to honor you. Now, I'm just going to conclude with this. It says in Romans 12, 1. Excuse, let me back up. If we're not careful, though, even though God pro- Jesus promises the Father's going to honor you, I'm going to suggest don't live a selfless life that's focused on one day the Father's going to honor me. See, that's the truth. That's going to happen, but that's not why I do it, okay? I don't look ahead, and the only reason why I'm following Jesus is because, man, I don't have to die in hell. I get to live forever. Fountain of youth, here I come. That's not why I serve Jesus. I, I love the fact that I get to spend eternity with God. Don't get me wrong. That eternal life is not something I wait for. It's something that actually is inside of me right now. I, that's amazing. I love that. And I have an eye on that, and, and, and I labor to serve him. But guess what? Romans 12:1 says this. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifice. See, why would I live a selfless life for a selfish goal of what I can get out of this? See, I'm going to follow God because of all that he'll give me. Can I tell you this? That God loves to bless his children. Don't doubt that for a moment. But that's not why I give. I don't give so I can get. Giving is selfless, generally. It's selfless. But when I make selfless giving a, 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 for a selfish goal, for what I can get out of it, have you ever had people, 
You think they're your friends, but really they're using you and they just have ulterior motives and you feel so let down, so hurt. I thought this was like mutual and it's not. They were only your friend because they had an ulterior motive. That is not God. Don't let that be us. I'm going to serve you, Jesus, because I'm looking forward to all you're going to get for me. That's, a, that's an eye ahead. G Paul says, keep your eye on the past. Keep your eye on the mercies of God. And the whole first 11 chapters of Romans, it's all about the mercy of God in view of our sin. Look at the degree to which he pursued you and loved you and gave his life for you. It even says in chapter 5 that he came to give his life for his enemies. That was you and me. So why do we act like this seed? Why do we lay it all down? Why do we not love the things of this world or this life that in the West, honestly, is very comfortable? It is because of all that God has done for me. And when I say that, I don't mean as if, well, I'm obligated and I need to pay him back. Really? You're going to live your life to pay him back? First of all, that is utterly impossible. I do it. He loved me so that I would love him back. He won me so that I would fall in love with him. He did all of this for me to capture my heart, change me. So instead of being his enemy, I would look to him and for the rest of my life be devoted to him and follow him and not be distracted by the things of this world, but one singular eye focused upon him in view of his mercies, in view of all that you've done for me. I am going to live for you. And yes, one day the Father will honor me. Church, if I were to tell you, God's called me to the mission field and I'm going to a third world country. I mean, I hope you would be sad because you would miss me, but you would say, wow, that's, that's a very commendable goal. And right before I leave, I said, you know what? God has changed my plans. Instead, he's called me to be a missionary to Hawaii. How many of you would doubt my intentions in that? Would wonder, Hawaii, really? And I'm not saying that those who are called to Hawaii, that, you know, they love the world. I'm not suggesting this, but you would wonder, wouldn't you? Because I would get something out of that. I would live in a beautiful country that has volcanoes that regularly erupt. Anyway, the truth, though, is that you would, what's your real, what's your real goal here? You know, when people wondered, Mike and Meredith are going down to Orlando, Florida to plant a church. Yeah, why do they really want to do that? Great, yeah. Orlando has the most sunny skies I have heard than any other city in the world. But that's not why we came here. Actually, when I was engaged to my wife, we made, a, we made a pact. I experienced one week during the month of August in South Florida where she was from. And we made, when we get married, we will never live in Florida. Okay? Blood covenant. Okay? Never. God has such a sense of humor. We did not come to Florida because we loved the weather. My wife does love the sun. I have to work out in it, so I don't necessarily. But the truth is, I enjoy living here, but it's not why I came. That's not my ulterior motive. Church, you and I, we are called. Not for ulterior motives. We are called and sent into this world. The first thing we have to do is die so that our life is given 
many seeds are produced. What are you giving your life to? Can you stand with me in prayer? Fathers, we wrap up this time in your word. I, I realize that my words can only go so far, and I am just asking you, Spirit of God, take those necessary words and plant them incisively in people's hearts. And I pray that, Father, when we leave here, your word will be changing the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live our life this week. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would walk with us through this week, constantly remembering what does it really mean right now, this day, for me to hate this life in this world and to be like that seed that dies and whose main mission is Jesus. And I just ask, Spirit of God, show us and lead us into that truth, that way of living that is radical in our day. We want to serve you and follow you. Win our hearts, Jesus. Lead us, good shepherd, that we would look more and more like you. And I just thank you for every single person here tonight, Lord God. Take your word and seal it in their heart. Encourage us and change us. For your glory, God, in Jesus' name.